Hey everyone, back again. Today I'm going to conclude A Thousand Plateaus. Now if you've been following along, you'd think that this episode would start on chapter 11, but I've already done that one. Additionally, I've already done chapter 13 on their own, both chapter 11 and 13. So this episode just really covers chapter 12 and chapter 14. So chapter 12 is 1227, Treatise on Nomadology, or the, uh, the War Machine, and then chapter 14 is um, Smooth and Striated Spaces. So I don't mention the conclusion, really, because the conclusion is just a summary, and I should have mentioned this much earlier, but if you want to really understand this text, the conclusion is very helpful. That is, don't read it last, read it first, which I really should have mentioned right off the bat. But in any case, here we are. So before jumping into it, uh, you can follow me on Instagram if you want, at theory underscore and underscore philosophy to see mostly pictures of my cats. Uh, you can help me out by liking, sharing, subscribing. Who knows, maybe if you have a friend or yourself having trouble sleeping at night and you want a way to go to sleep, I'm sure that this would put anyone to sleep. Um, you can contribute monetarily if you'd like to do that via uh, Patreon or PayPal where there's you know some exclusive benefits and stuff. Uh, and yeah, besides that, let's, let's jump right into it. Don't want to wait. Oh yeah. And if you're listening to this on YouTube, you can find it in podcast form. If you go and listen to it in podcast form, you know, leave me five stars. That'd be great. Uh, and if you're listening to this in podcast form, you can find it on YouTube where I sometimes do videos, which if you're interested in that, then that's, there's that. So let's start now. Chapter 12, 1227, Treatise on Nomadology, The War Machine. Now, this is for me when the book gets the most interesting, specifically this chapter and chapter 13, which, again, I'm going to say I've already done on its own, Apparatus of Capture. But I love this stuff about the war machine. So this this chapter is broken into three broad, uh, I guess, sub-chapters, and they assume the form of axioms. So axioms are like principles or uh, characteristics of the war machine. That they're going to discuss and each one of these axioms is accompanied by a number of propositions that kind of inform the axiom provided as well as a number of problems that uh, it confronts so we start out with axiom one and the axiom one says the war machine is exterior to the state apparatus now this is accompanied by proposition one that says that this exteriority is first attested to in mythology, epic, drama, and in games. So, just to kind of reiterate, the war machine is external, exterior to the state. So, Indo, in Indo-European myth, uh, Georges Dumézil has shown that political sovereignty has two heads. It is comprised of the magician king and the jurist priest. There are two pretty important figures here, so try to burn that into your head. We have the magician king and the jurist priest that make up kind of early state formations. So they can be understood as the distinction between uh, the obscure and the clear, the violent and the calm, the quick and the weighty. So let me just repeat that. But the magician king and the jurist priest priest distinction can be understood as a distinction between obscure and clear, violent, calm, quick, and weighty. Now they are both, as the next chapter will show and that I'm not covering here, so I'll just mention this briefly, they are both wrapped up in um, an agenda to capture. They want to capture other people, other spaces for their own will. So this distinction between them is only regulative. And what I mean by that is that it's not like something specific to them. And that, well, the reason I'm saying that is because they are really two sides of the same coin of sovereignty or these early state systems. And they comprise, they form the state, the double articulation. They are the double articulation as we saw so early on in the book with the God's two pincers as a lobster. This double articulation of the state, the state comprised of this magician uh, emperor and um, jurist priest, priest, sorry, magician king and jurist priest. Now the state exerts its force through either kind of non-warlike ways, so non-overt ways, and this, you know, assumes a form of like police or guards or something like that, where force is enacted but not like on a grand scale, 
and they contrast that with like armies, organized, regulated armies, uh, which is what they call the juridical integration of war. Now, what is extremely important is that war, as they're describing it here, is not synonymous with the war machine. The war machine, in fact, has very little, if anything at all, to do with war as it is understood today or as it was understood in terms of these early state formations. So in the Vedic tradition out of um, Hinduism, the god Indra embodies the war machine for um, uh, Deleuze and Guattari, who, because he challenges bonds of magician king and packs of the jurist priest, it is the machine, in this case, versus the apparatus. So let me re-articulate that. They say that Indra is a god that is indicative of the war machine because he opposes both the bonds of the magician king and the packs of the jurist priest, which I've said and they've said are attached to the state apparatus. So Indra opposes the state apparatus, which they then liken to a machine opposing the state apparatus, not a machine in the sense of like a factory machine, but a machine in the sense that they've been talking about throughout the course of this whole book, you know, all these machinic assemblages uh, and whatnot. So th for them, the war machine is then a place or a kind of uh, element of <laughs> nomadic life that portends, that potentiates becoming. It, it allows change and flux that is arrested by the state system, state apparatus. So they illustrate the distinction between the war machine and the state apparatus with the distinction between Go, which is a, um, a game that is played, I guess, in some Asian countries, I think mostly in China, I think, um, versus chess. So they're similar in that they're both strategy games played on like a 2D uh, surface where you, you know, um, in Go, your goal is to place like little beads, I guess, that are meant to kind of capture or trap your um, your opponent's movements so that they are kind of restricted and have to have to limit themselves. And it allows for a very dynamic movement. They liken this to the war machine, whereas chess is very regimented, like each piece has its, uh, you know, it has its possible movements and you can't vary from that. And you can only go in these very specific places or squares. Now, they caution against us thinking that the state exists on one side and the war machine exists on another. While they, they do want us to think that to some extent, they qualify this by saying that the state is not only representative of something that stands opposite to the war machine and is exterior to the war machine, or vice versa, that the war machine is exterior to the state, they want to say that the state is in itself what they call a pure interiority. It is the sign of everything interior, that is everything being coded, structured according to these rules and principles, whereas the war machine is pure exteriority. That is, it opposes all of these kinds of coded uh, regimens, these coded structures that put everything under its kind of umbrella, under its control, under its interiority. So the state is what appropriates the war machine. So in the transition, if we were to draw a kind of vulgar, broad transition from war machine to the state, we would obviously, you know, Deleuze and Guattari wouldn't agree with that. But what we would be demonstrating is that there's like a difference between the two. Whereas Deleuze and Guattari are saying, no, the war machine lives on in the state, but the state mutates it and uses it for its own purposes. Now, consequently, uh, the, the war machine, when it is appropriated by the state, can either fold into the state's military system, or it can turn against itself to become a double suicide machine, like in fascism, as we talked about it last time. So that brings us here into the first problem they identify. And that problem goes as follows. Is there a way of warding off the state apparatus or its equivalent in a group? Like, is the state something that should be, you know, conjured away by the war machine? And can that happen? And this is accompanied by the proposition, the second proposition, that the exteriority of the war machine is also attested to by ethnology, uh, 
a tribute to the memory of Pierre Clastre, uh, who is a super interesting Pierre Clastre. Um, uh, he, I don't know how you pronounce it in uh, Clastre, if, if you've heard like the anglicized version of it. Uh, but yeah, Pierre Clastre is a super interesting, um, I guess, anthropologist, French anthropologist. And he has a book, The Archaeology of Violence, I believe it's called. It's super interesting. Um, anyways, you should check out that stuff. I enjoy it quite a bit. Uh, so anyway, sorry. Traditionally, it was believed that early people did not possess the technical and political and economic knowledge to form a state, right? And this feeds into the idea of a general split between nomadic people and sedentary people between the war machine and the state apparatus. Now, what Clastre did is he troubled that idea. Clastre was like, no, it seems as though these early civilizations could in fact they did have these very organized very complex modes of organization that in many ways we just don't understand because we you know we don't have the evidence or we don't we don't have these people to tell us what things meant now with that being said like of course there are differences between these early people and the state like early people may have had chiefs or shamans or as like kind of rulers or whatever whereas the states have more rigid organs of power. So that's like, uh, the, the, it's more fluid. These early people are more fluid versus the state as being more rigid. Now, Klaasche and then Deleuze and Guattari take this up as well, suggest that the, these early states were actually, and not early states, these early people, these nomadic people, not only were they more complex than we give them credit for, and this is, adduced by, you know, the many different uh, archaeological findings over the past, you know, 50 years, even since, even since Deleuze and Guattari were writing, like with the uh, discovery of like Gobleki Tepe, uh, you know, they would have known about Jericho, but Ketohoyek, like all of these different state, early state kind of, um, or not early state, but er structures put up by early people, hunters and gatherers, essentially, really demonstrate that these people were much more complex than we give them credit for. And I, this might be the only time I ever do this uh, because I don't like Joe Rogan, but he, on one of his episodes, I happened to see he has, and it's worth checking out. He has a guy named Graham Hancock, Michael Shermer, I think, and Randall Carlson on. And the interesting thing, if, if Joe would ever like shut the hell up in any of his um, interviews, is to watch these people debate about um, these early people, you know, debating just how intelligent they really were. So I definitely recommend that. So what these people had was they weren't just more complex. Klaasre and then Deleuze and Guattari go so far as to say that these people anticipated the state apparatus and were actually warding it off. They were actually trying to conjure away the state. And we're going to continue on in this vein throughout the course of this chapter. So I'm just going to kind of move on here and what they, where they go with this. So they, they see a limitation with Klaastre a little bit because Klaastre maintains that Klaastre. Anyways, I don't even know if I'm pronouncing it right in French. Uh, Klaastre does maintain a distinction between early and, and uh, so-called modern or civilized people that Deleuze and Guattari are not prepared to make because they see that, um, they suggest that, in fact, there are many similarities in the capacity of these early people to oppose the state. So instead of framing it as a distinction between, uh, you know, these early states or the war machine and state apparatus or these early people in state apparatuses, they instead, as I mentioned just briefly earlier, they propose a distinction between exteriority and interiority, where they associate interiority with the state apparatuses of identity that are extremely rigid, with the exteriority of the war machine that motivates metamorphosis, change, transformation. And these two poles, that is the interiority and exteriority, exist in co coexistence and competition, essentially in a perpetual field of interaction. So here we get the third proposition that they give us that goes as follows. The exteriority of the war machine is also attested to by epistemology, which intimates the existence and perpetuation of a nomad or minor science. 
So in English, what that means is that we can find evidence of the war machine in epistemology, the study of knowledge. Or specifically, they say that we can find evidence of the war machine in science, what they call an eccentric science that has four properties. This is how they define the eccentric science. So number one, it sees that the ancient atomism is inseparable from flows and flux, is really itself or consistency. So let me just re reframe that. They say that atomism is consistency. So it is consistent or continuous variation as comprising reality, not a kind of stagnant, homogeneous formation as the state would suggest or hope for, you know. And we see this obviously occurring today. We tend to gravitate towards easy explanations of things instead of really dealing with the fact that the world is very complicated and doesn't make sense to us. So the second property is that uh, the eccentric science is a model of becoming and heterogeneity. Third, it is a move from proceeding from the straight line to parallel uh, to parallel lines to a proceeding from a curvilinear declination to the formation of spirals and vortices. So it's this movement towards these more um, heterogeneous forms, these, these uh, I guess, inordinary geometric formations. And then finally, we have, uh, it is not to shy from exemptions. The eccentric science looks at anomalies and exceptions. And it is essentially to embrace deformations, transmutations, passages to the limit. So these are all kind of qualities of eccentric science. And they are residual, residual components of the war machine that opposes all the kind of structures assumed of, you know, the mainstream science or whatever kind of science they're opposing this eccentric science to. So this eccentric or what they also call a nomad science sits upon the plane of consistency or the planemon, planemon, as mentioned earlier in the book, while the imperial or regulated or kind of regular science or royal science, they, they, they call it, uh, the state apparatus science relies upon the plane of organization or of the organism or of the ecumenon. So this royal science divides governors from the governed unskilled forms of labor from skilled forms of labor, etc. Like it wants to code and understand and, and create charts and graphs and, and really grasp everything. Whereas um, this nomad science um, doesn't divide things in any such way. It, it, you know, embraces things that do not comply with the, with the standard. So then we are confronted with another problem here. And that problem is, is there a way to extricate thought from the state model? That is to take it to thinking away from this royal science. So is there a way to extricate thought from the state model? With this, we have our next proposition, proposition four. The exteriority of the war machine is attested to, finally, by newology. Newology is the study of thought, essentially. So in addition to the discussion of two forms of science above that illustrate war machine, so too does newology prove it, right? Because the fact that there is this eccentric science proves, at least for Deleuze and Guattari, that uh, there is a potential for something that stands outside of the royal science, the kind of legitimate form that they liken to the war machine. So for Deleuze and Guattari, in their words, only thought is capable of inventing the fiction of a state that is universal by right. So it was, it was thought that kind of gave birth to that. And they continue. The state gives thought a form of interiority, and thought gives that interiority a form of universality. And so in this way, the state essentially becomes synonymous with thought. All pure thought justify the state and vice versa, the triumph of logos for them, essentially. So when we uh, apply thought, when we think about things, because we are determined by our surroundings in, in many cases, that means that our thought is going to be geared towards the state, which we are a part of at this point in our, you know, in human history. But I really want to emphasize that, you know, the state is incredibly new. If we locate the earliest state formations to about 10,000 years ago, you know, when humans were beginning to organize, but that is even like shady. It'd be more like 6,000 years ago, give or take, when, you know, states were really popping up according to 
you know, I, I think widely accepted archaeological and anthropological insight. Given that, there were 50,000 to 55,000 years when humans were the way they are now. That is, you know, erect Homo sapiens. So for 60,000 years, we have been what we are. Essentially, our brains were the same size. We had the same physical composition, you know, you know, give or take a few minute differences. And so a lot has happened in just these past few thousand years relative to the rest of our, uh, you know, human existence as, as we are now. And so it seems totally strange that we have such faith in the state or the idea of organization in relation to states. Now, within this, the fact that there are thinkers that don't abide by the logic of the state, you know, as opposed to like um, Hobbes or Locke or any of these philosophers that were very much in favor of the state, you have thinkers like Nietzsche, who they, they give an example of, who is a kind of nomad existing within the state giving us evidence that maybe there's an exteriority to the state, something that exists outside of it. So they prescribe a kind of becoming exteriority of thought. What they, what they say is the nece, sorry, what they say uh, is the necessity of not having control over language of being a foreigner in one's own tongue. That is, you know, you, you're given this language as an attachment to the state and it is about opposing that. And that brings us into the second axiom that goes as follows. The war machine is the invention of the nomads insofar as it is exterior to the state apparatus and distinct from the military institution. So the war machine was invented by the nomads. As such, the war machine has three aspects, a spatio-geographic aspect, an arithmetic or, an, or algebraic aspect, and an effective aspect. And with this comes Proposition 5. Nomad existence necessarily effectuates the conditions of the war machine in space. Oh my god, I never talked about the year. <laughs> Shit. Okay, so at the beginning of this chapter, there's the year 1227. And according to the translator, should have said this, 1227 uh, was the year that the nomad war machine existed for a moment in its pure form on the vacant smooth spaces of the steppes of Inner Asia. Sorry about that. Not that it matters. Anyways, let me repeat that proposition there. Nomad existence necessarily effectuates the conditions of the war machine in space. So the nomad existence effectuates the war machine. So the nomad, like everyone else, moves from point to point, right? They, they are nomadic, like that's what they do. They, they aren't sedentary, they don't stay in one place. So what makes them different is that they don't subordinate the path to the points. So in contrast to, to like the road, the, the development of roads by the state, for example, the nomadic path, in their words, distributes people or animals in an open space, one that is indefinite and non-communicating. So it is in, in flux. You know, you have to adapt your path to the land, to the weather, to, you know, the animals that are accompanying you, whereas the road is what just kind of cuts across all differences and flattens out all possibility. So as such, the nomad doesn't have a territory per se, but it re-territorializes or what is deterritorial, uh, an earth in constant flux. It, it re-territorializes on what is deterritorial. It, it re-territorializes on the world. And this is because nomads are decidedly local. They exist in one place and that land is will be theirs for as long as they're there. You know, even if they're just picking berries, like they exert some kind of like connection with that land and they give that land a kind of face. They are kind of organ in that instance. But then by coming in contact with the body without organs, the earth in that in that case, they then um, assume a different kind of organic form. But then as they leave, they become a new organ that attaches to another machine or they are a machine that connects to another machine and so on. So the nomad is localized, but not limited. Limiting is reserved for the modern states that essentially close and striate. They segment, they create uh, barriers where no, no such barriers exist for the nomad. 
So the nomads formed the war machine. They, they are, the war machine is indebted to them. And they did this by inventing absolute speed, by bringing synonymous uh, with speed, or sorry, by being synonymous with speed. So it is revitalized sometimes, like with insubordination, rioting, guerrilla warfare, um, or, or revolutionary acts within the state. So it's not as though, and you know, I think I already stressed this enough, but I'll say it again, they are not totally uh, mutually exclusive. So you can have elements of the war machine within the state and vice versa. And that's how they were able to ward off the emergence of the state for so long. And here we get Proposition 6. Nomad existence necessarily implies the uh, numerical elements of a war machine. So you might think numbers, numerical, that sounds like a state. That sounds like, like, like state witchcraft or state alchemy. Maybe witchcraft is not the best term. State alchemy or state um, construction. So how do numbers square with the war machine? They can be a part of the war machine because they emerged alongside nomads. At least the history of numbers certainly did. And so when an army's numbers, uh, when an army numbers its soldiers, like it gives them uh, like various regiments are comprised of this many people and a squad is this many and so many squads in a, in a battalion or a platoon or whatever. I don't actually know how that works. Um, so when an army numbers its soldiers, we are seeing not striation per se, but a residue from nomadic uh, life nomadic way of living. So they sketch this distinction between the use of numbers by nomads and those of the moderns. So this is how they say it in their words. This is on 389 in my version. These numbers appear as soon as one distributes something in space. Instead of dividing up space or distributing space itself, the number becomes a subject. The independence of the number in relation to space is a result not of abstraction, but of the concrete nature of smooth space, which is occupied without itself being counted. The number is no longer a means of counting or measuring, but of moving. It is the number itself that moves through smooth space. And this is what they'll come to call the numbering number. It is numbers not for the sake of like demarcating and limiting space, but as they said just there, to move through space. And of course, the state apparatus appropriates this. And here we move pretty quickly into Proposition 7. Nomad existence has for affects, has, has for effects, the weapons of a war machine. Has for effects, not for, has for effects, the weapons of a war machine. So it is difficult to parse out the intrinsic differences between weapons and tools. You know, a hammer could be a weapon or it could be a tool. Like, how do we actually qualify the difference between the two. So Deleuze and Guattari provides some differences though. Number one, whereas the weapon is about an immediate response, a kind of counterattack, the tool is a more calculated appendage of a, of a human. Like they're both appendages, like we both use them in, from our like hands or whatever. Uh, the tool is much more calculated. You think about using it in advance. So weapons are also thrown, emphasizing their lack of association with duration. Weapons are spontaneous. And that's, that's going to be important here. Okay, secondly, weapons do not emerge with the hunt. Those appendages are better understood as tools. So like the objects used when hunting animals are probably better understood as tools. Tools are better suited here because to hunt prey is only an occasional event. It's not like a one that necessarily springs up. It's something that you plan for. Weapons are taken up when suddenly the human becomes the hunted. They become an en enemy to another human. And this implies perpetu perpetuity, a continuation ad infinitum. Because when you are labeled an enemy, when you become an enemy to another tribe or something, the risk is always present. So weapons supply this never-ending cycle in the uh, compilation of desper disparate instances that occur at rapid pace. So you see an accumulation a kind of amalgamation of various instances that happen over a large, wide span of time, and they happen spontaneously. And so they are fleeting moments when weapons are used, but they happen very uh, they, repeatedly. So the war machine, then, they suggest, 
arrives concomitantly with the end of the hunt and with the emergence of animal raising, when suddenly humans could then hunt one another. They weren't just hunting animals, they could they had animals that they were raising, these kind of no, nomads that had their own cattle or whatever, uh, could then hunt other humans. Now with all this, they emphasize that there isn't really anything intrinsic in either weapons or tools. So they haven't really said what makes one of the one different from the other. The only somewhat intrinsic, that is internal difference, is their history, that is their proximity to the war machine or their proximity to, uh, to you know, work or labor. In other words, they locate the tool in, in the work model where it is tied to a gravity displacement weighty, weight height system while they locate weapon in free action model where it is tied to speed in perpetuum uh, mobile system which is pretty much just to say that the definition of a tool versus a weapon comes about contextually, like the context is what determines it. But it, it is recognizing context in relation to these things they've set out, that is the war machine versus the state apparatus. So like weapons, they say that affect is the active discharge of emotion, the counterattack, whereas feeling is always is an always displaced, resisting emotion. Affects are projectiles just like weapons. Feelings are introceptive like tools. So they liken affect with these weapons, which with these kind of uh, appendage of the human, of the war machine in these settings, because affect, as the, you know, we've already discussed in one of the previous chapters or plateaus, is that thing that we don't necessarily control, but that is imparted upon us and that we internalize and then comes out through us in a kind of ab reaction that we don't necessarily have control over. So weapons like affect are decoding. They, they don't ascribe to a pattern per se, whereas tools and emotion are coding. So now we're confronted with another problem. Uh, problem three, how do the nomads invent or find their weapons? In other words, their affect which is accompanied by the proposition number eight, metallurgy in itself constitutes a flow necessarily confluent with nomadism. So these are these weapons are created by metallurgy, they have to be, which we might think looking from the outside in that metallurgy is the uh, triumph of the state. Like it's something only the state could, could produce, whereas they locate it squarely within nomadism. So, it is genuinely difficult to discern those metallurgic creations by nomadic people and those that they appropriate from the state. So it's unclear as to the nomadic people created um, the various tools or weapons they had, or if they just kind of stole them or copied them from the state. However, Deleuze and Guattari hold firm that metallurgists were necessarily controlled by a state apparatus but they also had to enjoy a certain technological autonomy so that, even controlled, they did not belong to the state any more than they were themselves nomads, so they existed kind of on the margins in that way. So despite its appearance, metallurgy is not a coded science per se. It's not, a, it, it's a more, it's, it's an eccentric science as they just mentioned earlier. So they elaborate on this on page 405. They say that for metallurgy is inseparable from several lines of variation, variation between meteorites and indigenous metals, variation between ores and proportions of metals, variation between alloys, natural and artificial, variation between the operations performed upon a metal, variation between the qualities that make a given operation possible or that result from a given operation, uh, and they go on saying all these different variations. So metallurgy isn't isn't like restricted. It's it's an eccentric science, and it has like a kind of a dynamic vitalism. Like it's changing and mutating. Like even to find out how to properly do metallurgy happens by you know trial and error. And this trial and error is going to be susceptible to many changes. Like if you're working with a metal that might happen to have had a, a weathered history then you're going to have different uh, results with the heat that you apply to it. And so it's going to change over that time. So they associate this metallurgy with a machinic phylum, which is a, a matter in movement 
in flux, in variation, matter as a conveyor of singularities and traits of expression. So in their words, what metal and metallurgy bring to light is a life proper to matter, a vital state of matter as such, um, a material vitalism that doubles, double, doubtless exists everywhere but is ordinarily hidden or covered, rendered unrecognizable, dissociated by the hylomorphic model. Sorry, apparently have trouble reading 27 year old man i can't even read and so they they say that metal is like a body without organs because it is the conductor of all matter so the smith is someone who is neither nomadic nor sedentary they are they are hybrid they are kind of like the abstract machine that's cutting across all these different planes so that propels us into the third axiom and final axiom the nomad war machine is the form of expression of which itinerant metallurgy is the correlative form of content. So this is that double articulation again between form, uh, form and content, form and substance, and content and expression. So let me just repeat that. The war machine is the form of expression, whereas metallurgy is the form of the content. So proposition, this also brings with it proposition 9, which is long. So bear with me as I read Proposition 9 that immediately follows Axiom 3. War does not necessarily have the battle as its object, and more important, the war machine does not necessarily have war as its object, although war and the battle may be its necessary result under certain conditions. So this is essentially to say that war you know, is not necessarily a part of the war machine. But they ask the questions anyways. So they ask, is battle the object of war? Is war the object of the war machine? And is war machine object of the state? So let me repeat those one more time. Is battle the object of war? Is war the object of the state? Or is war the object of the war machine? And is the war machine object of the state? So for the first question, is battle the object of war? They say yes, battle is the object of war, but also is non-battle. So kind of no. Both battle and non-battle are the object of war, at least in terms of like uh, the contrast between all-out battlefield war and guerrilla warfare. That is, guerrilla warfare is kind of like a non-battle. It's the, it's supposed, it's like it's very uh, kind of, you know, what guerrilla warfare is, whatever. So, question two is: War the object of the war machine? They say no. War is only object of war machine when it confronts the state or the city. So this war machine mobilizes war against the state or the city. And then thirdly, is the war machine object of state or of the state apparatus? And they say no, nor is it, is it an object of nature though. So war doesn't exist in nature. Like there aren't animals going to war with other animals. War only becomes the war machine's sole object when it is appropriated by the state it war machine becomes synonymous with war when it is appropriated by the state so this is to turn that war machine actually against nomadic life or more broadly against exteriority to use it to drown out to remove uh alterity from the, the surface of the earth so the state does this really effectively obviously you know our whole history is immersed in this under capitalism, it attains this, it performs this the most spectacularly, however, because capitalism resembles the war machine, and it mobilizes itself against an unspecified enemy. And we'll get into that a little bit more in the next chapter, which we're at now. The smooth, chapter 14, the smooth and the striated. And I just want to say again, I skipped over chapter 13 because I've already done it on its own. So Apparatus of Capture is its standalone episode that you can go listen to. So chapter 14, the smooth and the striated. Smooth space is nomadic, whereas striated space is sedentary. And I could probably end this chapter there because that's essentially what they're saying. Uh, but anyways, they elaborate a little more. So they say that smooth space and striated space are not like separate they fold into and translate into one another now this brings up a number of different problems uh, does one consume the other how are they different really uh, to answer this they present a number of different models so they present things like the technological model the maritime model the musical model 
that we're going to go through one by one here. So they start with a technological model to consider the relationship between the smooth and the striated. So they say that uh, with fabric, you know, like what you wear, fabric or decorate something with, it is a kind of striated space while felt is smooth. They use these two, to, two, oh my God. They use these two to complicate the distinction between smooth and striated. So in terms of like quilts, for example, there can be either plain or patchwork quilts. Plain might initially communicate smoothness because it's just one uh, product or one kind of fabric used to cover the surface of the quilt. And patchwork might seem to be striated because it's like all these different parts sewn together and you can see the borders and, and ridges and stuff. But they actually say the opposite. For Deleuze and Guattari, um, patchwork, although it is striated, it has these breaks and borders and whatever, is actually nomadic because various um, patches emerged from these disparate locations to kind of come together, like kind of flowing that, that came together. Whereas um, the homogenous plain, um, plain quilt doesn't have that kind of uh, rhizomatic or heterogeneous veneer. Now that now they introduce the musical model. So they write here, and I'm just going to read what they write about the musical model because they don't really elaborate too much. So returning to the simple opposition, the striated is that which intertwines fixed and variable elements, produces an order and succession of distinct forms, and organizes horizontal melodic lines and vertical harmonic planes, hence the music aspect. Where the smooth, on the other hand, is the continuous variation, continuous development of form, it is the fusion of harmony and melody in favor of the production of properly rhythmic values, the pure act of the drawing of a diagonal across the vertical and the horizontal. So there we get this distinction once more. And then they move into the maritime model. You know, if you're wondering, well, why is this important? Why are they talking about it in these ways? All of these different models highlight just the intricacies of the distinction between the smooth and the striated, how they fold together, how they are different, and so on. So the maritime model is dealing with land versus sea, kind of. So there are lines and points in both smooth and striated spaces. It would be totally wrong to say that lines are just reserved for smooth spaces and points reserved for striated. Instead, what they want to say is that in striated spaces, lines are subordinated to points, and in smooth spaces, the opposite is the case. So points are subordinated to lines. So let me say that again to hopefully make it clearer. Uh, striated spaces like points that are, you know, their own things and that don't form new connections and flows or whatever. Whereas in smooth spaces, it's all about the lines, the movements, the flows. So in smooth space, the line assumes the form of a vector as opposed to a dimension or metric determination. So it is directional in smooth space rather than dimensional. Directional versus dimensional. So at the beginning of, you know, this whole process, this nomadic way of living and, and the war machine, if you will, the sea represented a smooth space. So the ocean, you know, great big lakes, seas were smooth spaces. But with the emergence of navigation, which is clearly indicative of a kind of striation, a kind of science imposed upon these smooth spaces, these uh, smooth spaces like the sea become stri striated. So the same can be said of the city, which is striated, but is not impervious to smoothness. So the in this distinction, it has to be maintained that in smooth spaces, there can still be striation and vice versa versa. So in striated spaces, you can still find elements of smoothness. Then see, we move to the mathematical model and see what that has to say about it. So it was an explosive event when multiplicity became a noun, when suddenly multiplicity wasn't just to describe uh, something else, but was in itself its own thing. When differences made comparison difficult, which this is when uh, differences made comparisons difficult. You suddenly couldn't compare two things. So here's the formation of singular intensities that can't be chopped up or divided. 
for example, distances, unlike magnitudes, uh, that can't be divided lest you change the thing in question. So they say the singular intensities are like distances that can't be divided. So for example, like a temperature, if you have a temperature and divide it, you're not dealing with the same thing anymore. Uh, you're dealing with something fundamentally different. Or a speed. If you divide a speed, you aren't just taking like, you never ask what is like the half of the speed because then you're describing something totally different. I guess you could ask that. Anyways, this is what they give us. So while it might appear that numbers belong to magnitude and ordering, they say, Deleuze and Guattari, that is, say that numbers can belong to both. As And we already talked about this in the last chapter with um, the use of numbers, you know, numbering, the numbering number versus what they introduce here is the numbered numbers. So numbering numbers are smooth, whereas numbered numbers are striated. So they liken smooth spaces to fractals. Now, they have a few images of that in the book, but it's a fractal is kind of, I don't know how to describe it. You got to just look it up. Um, but it's just like a number of different, imagine a line with a triangle drawn in it, and then that triangle then forming more triangles, and then each one of those triangles forming more triangles on it, each one of the consecutive lines that they uh, produce, and so on and so forth. So a fractal for them is an aggregate whose number of dimensions is fractional rather than whole, and it is a fractional number greater than one. So it, it is always divisible in that way, or it's dividing to infinity. Oh my god, okay, so that pushes us here to the physical model. So homogeneity isn't indicative of smooth smoothness per se, as we already demonstrated with the plain quilt. It was homogeneous, but it wasn't necessarily smooth, whereas the patchwork quilt was. It is rather characteristic of segments that have attained uh, a similar kind of comparison. So when we talk about something in terms of homogeneity, we aren't talking about smoothness. We're talking about similarities drawn between striated spaces, whereas heterogeneity is what comprises smoothness. So the only connection the smooth and the homogeneous enjoy is what the striated forces them is when the striated forces them into interactions, like if uh, like on in the sea when navigation is introduced, where suddenly you have longitudes and lat latitudes and true north and astrolabes and all these different you know tools used to kind of partition out the the ocean to make sense of it, you are still confronted with this kind of smooth space in the form of the ocean that presents various risks, but you are mapping onto it, this homogeneous kind of coded enterprise. And so it's in that moment that the two actually interact, but they don't, you know, they aren't necessarily uh, born together. Now they extend this to consider the distinction of smooth and striated spaces in economic terms, with their focus being on capitalism that embodies both. Capitalism embodies both the striated and the smooth. So it is striated in its compensatory territorializations, for example, like the fact that capitalism still relies on the state or religion, which are very limited uh, territories in this globalized rhizomatic uh, state uh, capitalist system, while it is also smooth in, its, in the flows of capital. So capitalism embodies both. And again, we're seeing the how they both fold into one another. And that pushes us here into the last model, the aesthetic model, colon nomad art. So in terms of the assessment of art from uh, any sphere, they write that the smooth is both the, both the object of a close vision, par excellence, and the element of um, a haptic space. So haptic space is uh, considering it in terms of like touch. So you see something and they're talking about it not in terms of seeing it with your eye per se, but your eye touching the thing by being proximately close to it. So the stri striated relates to a more distant vision, whereas um, the smooth relates to a more uh, kind of close vision. So when you see something from far, you can, you can striate it, whereas if you see something from close, you can smooth it out. And the way I like to think about this is like if you've ever been on a plane and the plane is landing, you know, at the airport uh, and you, you're looking out the window, you see all the people's backyards 
as the, and you know they're all divided off in these little squares depending on where you are in the world obviously but you have all these little squares that partition off people's little plot of land and it's like a grid whereas when you're up close to it you don't see those divisions you don't see those striations so it can give the kind of semblance of being smooth so the two kinds of lines that emanate from smooth and strided spaces are abstract and organic lines respectively so abs the abstract line emanates from smooth space whereas the organic line emanates from um, from striated space so this isn't to life is not to embrace organic lines it is to embrace abstract lines that is a body without organs so because we're talking about it in terms of organic here is not synonymous with organism or it is but it's not synonymous with life i should say the organic and organism is indicative of the stratum it is indicative of arborescence it is indicative of the ecumenon that is actually it forecloses life it forecloses possibility and movement whereas life is actually to be found in the abstract line on the smooth space and that is essentially a body without organs but as as we've already made clear i think to this point they don't give all their faith to the smooth because as we've already seen the smooth has been appropriated the smooth might be the kind of smoothness we see in under capitalism which isn't necessarily good so what what the goal is essentially and this is how they conclude the book it is to find those abstract lines among the um, organic ones or among the striated spaces and i just want to read one of the last lines here to give you a sense as to how they prescribe this in the last instance they write that what interests us in operations of striation and smoothing are precisely the passages or combinations how the forces at work within space continually striate it and how in the course of its striation it develops other forces and emits new smooth spaces so they continue even the most striated cities give rise to smooth spaces to live in the city as a nomad or as a cave dweller movement speed and slowness are sometimes enough to reconstruct a smooth space of course smooth spaces are not in themselves liberatory but the struggle is changed or displaced in them and life reconstitutes its stakes confronts new obstacles invents new paces switches adversaries adversaries never believe that a smooth space will suffice to save us and that's how they it's a great last line the last few lines uh, and that's how they conclude it and that's just about it um, there's a there's a whole conclusion that I'm not going to cover because it's just essentially a keyword section where they explain what the various keywords mean. So I'm presenting it would be boring because then be like oh, then they define what striated spaces and the abstract machine what we've already been doing. So I'll leave it off there. Um, God, that was a just read that in like a couple of days and that's quite for the second time I, I've read that in a number of different chapters a few times each it's great book great book for those that think i missed something or i you know i mischaracterized the guitar in any way i would love to hear about it if you're willing to put in that work um if you like what i did here you can obviously contribute help me out um you can subscribe share like um whatever you think it's appropriate uh if you think i deserve a a, a dislike then that's fine with me too um but yeah so I'll catch you later. Take care.